manager that treats you like just another number on the spreadsheet, chances are you're not thinking during the day, man, I really want to walk through fire for this person and, and, and make them successful and put in the extra effort. But if those leaders are treating you as an employee with courtesy and so forth, uh, you're probably more inclined to do a little bit more for them. Welcome to Work Matters, where we explore what leaders can do to make work more productive, valuable, meaningful, and impactful. I am your host, Thomas Bertels. Our topic today is valuing human capital, and my guest is Dave Bookbinder. Dave is a valuation expert who has published two books, and he is also the host of the Behind the Numbers podcast and TV show on RVN TV. In today's episode, we discuss how the value of human capital is traditionally determined, why culture, engagement, and appreciation are critical to maximize the return on individuals, and how the transition towards the knowledge economy requires a different approach towards managing intangibles. As always, if you enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe to our show so you never miss an episode. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Dave Bookbinder. Welcome to the show, Dave. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Pleasure to be here. So our topic today is human capital. And um, in, in your book and in your talks, like you, you make, uh, you emphasize that, that really, uh, you know, employees are not really an expense as, as most companies treat them, but, but really should be looked at capital. Um, tell us a little bit more about that and, and also what are the implications for business leaders? Yeah, so I guess a little bit of background might be helpful for your audience to understand my lens. So I've been a uh, business valuation uh, consultant for, uh, God, longer than I care to admit now, so probably 30 years. And uh, over the course of my career, besides valuing businesses, I've also valued intangible assets, intellectual property. One of those intangible assets um, that I value is people, human capital. And we do it from a valuation standpoint in the form of the assembled workforce. So um, I, I've never believe that the methodologies that we use really told the whole story. I don't want to get too wonky here, but we essentially use a cost to replace method for valuing the workforce, which doesn't consider a whole host of other intangibles within the intangible asset, if you will. Um, I know, by the way, here's a, a fun question for you. I think you know the, the answer, but for your audience, just a quick question. Uh, anybody out there know where human capital sits on a balance sheet? You know, every CEO on the planet says it's this company's most valuable asset. So surely it must be on the balance sheet, right? On the asset ledger? Well, spoiler alert, this most valuable asset does not appear anywhere in a financial statement. So uh, my, my mantra is that people are assets, they're not expenses, because you can find expenses on uh, the income statement associated with things like salaries and benefits. Yeah, no, I think that's a, I think that's a, that's a really true point. But kind of like, you know, I mean, maybe taking that idea a little bit further. So if it's nowhere tracked, right, it, it's, it's just on the, on the expense side, but not on the, on the balance sheet. I mean, how, how do, how do leaders, how should leaders think about that? How do you get around that limitation? How do you actually put a value on your human capital? Yeah, so I come at it from this perspective, right? As a valuation professional, we value human capital in the form of the workforce in conjunction with an accounting exercise called a purchase price allocation. So when a business acquires another company, uh, we have to uh, put the acquired assets, both tangible and intangible, on the balance sheet at their fair value. So human capital is calculated using this cost of replace method, like I mentioned. 
And it's considered to be what's called a contributory asset, meaning it contributes to the value of other assets. So for instance, if we're valuing a customer relationship asset, we will apply a rental expense, if you will, for the use of the human capital, as well as the use of working capital and fixed assets and things like that, apply those charges against the cash flows of the customer relationship asset to get to the net customer value. So people in the form of the workforce gets subsumed into goodwill. So why should anybody care? Um, that's my point. Why should anybody care? People don't appear on a balance sheet. So the number gets subsumed into goodwill. It's not an actionable item. And oh, by the way, it doesn't reflect the entire company. It only reflects the, the assets that you're acquiring because that's when intangible value gets recognized. So I come at it from the lens that we need to look bigger picture and consider the impact that this great intangible asset has on the overall value of your business enterprise. So that that's my emphasis. So if you're looking at people as an investment in a sense, right? Um, as you hire people, you invest in their development. Um, but replacement cost talks a little bit about that, right? Where you're saying, well, you know, if that accountant right leaves, he was paid seventy five thousand, right? How much money is it going to cost me to replace it? And uh, and you have some some great points that you're making in your book that we actually I take a very simplistic view of that, right? That we think we can just hire another person and we don't really look at right so the, the the intangible aspect, which is people who know the culture, right? People who are engaged, people are you know want to be part of our mission. Um, all of those factors that are very important. But if we're looking at people as an investment, what's your take on what, what leaders can do to improve the value of that asset? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I can get very, very deep into the weeds on this, and there's a lot of empirical data that would support that. But keeping it at a very simple level, I mean, really treat people like people. You know, at the end of the day, these assets, right, the people go home. Your assets leave the building at night. Uh, if you truly believe that they are your most valuable assets, treat them accordingly. Treat them with respect, courtesy, dignity, uh, appreciation, and and watch what happens to discretionary effort. I think everybody out there who's listening or watching has probably had an experience where they've worked for somebody who maybe just treated them as if they were another number on a spreadsheet. I know I certainly have, and that tends to resonate. I mean, if you if you've got a manager that treats you like just another number on the spreadsheet. Chances are you're not thinking during the day, man, I really want to walk through fire for this person and, and, and make them successful and put in the extra effort. But if those leaders are treating you as an employee with courtesy and so forth, uh, you're probably more inclined to do a little bit more for them. And the reality of the matter is, you know, I'm talking about things that some folks may be listening and thinking, uh, this is really squishy stuff. You know, you know my, my employees should be grateful that they have a job or grateful that we, we bring in pizza on Fridays and things like that. But the truth of the matter is there are tons of empirical studies that have been done that demonstrate that the companies that are giving consideration to those things that I talked about, even just take appreciation, for example, a simple thank you for your work. Thank you for your help. And the more specific you can get about that in terms of, hey, Thomas, I really like the way you handled this situation. Thank you so much. That goes such a long way. And oh, by the way, the companies that are doing those kinds of things right actually outperform their peers and competitors that aren't. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I also love your point. Oh, I love. I also love the fact that in your book, right, in the title, the new ROI. It's not the return on investment; it's the 
return on individuals. And, and I think that's a really, I think, important point, right? That as a leader, you really are well advised to take like a very individualistic lens, right? Not just to treat people as people as like an anonymous group, right? There's, there's individuals, they have specific needs and everybody has, has, a, has a different thing that they want, I guess, from, from the workplace and, and, and you know, different needs that, that leaders can fulfill. What, what do you think are some of the practices? I mean, like you worked with a lot of executives. Um, what do some of the people who do this best do different than all the others? The ones that do it best from the various interviews that I've conducted, um, they're doing it with intention. They recognize that they want to make a change in the organizational behavior. They recognize that it's got to get embedded into the DNA of the company. And they've told me that it takes time. Um, employees can be cynical when uh, new initiatives are rolled out, and probably rightfully so, right? Um, they they want to know that this isn't just some other fad initiative that, uh, that caught somebody's fancy. They want to understand and see that this is legit, it's real, uh, and management's committed to it. So I've been told that it takes probably between 18 months and 24 months before it really uh, gets embedded into the organization. Um, another thing that I've heard uh, has been very, very successful and has gained popularity recently is what uh, is uh, lovingly referred to as the no assholes policy. Uh, we're not going to tolerate bad behavior. Um, you know, we can, we can certainly try and coach people up and, and advise them on how they can be doing things differently if they're violating the so-called code of conduct. But we're not going to let people bully others. We're not going to tolerate a toxic workplace just because some toxic employees may outperform others. And once the employee team sees that leadership is actually enforcing that policy, man, you suddenly get their attention. One other thing I picked up in your book, which I really liked, is you talk about difference makers, which reminded me of this concept of the 10x coder, right? Where people say, you know, some people are just, you know, a lot more productive than others. Um, so, so maybe talk to us a little bit about that, that idea and, and what that means for leadership. Yeah, look, I think there, there are some folks who are just wired a little bit differently than others who generally have an inclination to try and get more out of their day and try and find more satisfaction and fulfillment out of their work. Um, and to the extent that it lines up neatly with the organizational goals and objectives uh, and it dovetails with how they're being treated, you, you can actually capture that you know, the, the, the term of art is discretionary effort. That's the going above and beyond. And that's where really the magic happens. That's where you get the great ideas. Um, that's where the innovation occurs. And that's how things get done differently. That's the process improvement pieces. And it can happen at any level of the organization. This isn't just you know a C-suite kind of construct I'm talking about here. It could literally be somebody on the factory floor who has a better idea on how a conveyor belt should be moving or at what particular point in the day uh, we should schedule a truck to do a delivery because traffic is going to be greater in that area. So it, it can really be simple, nuanced things, but the, the folks who are in the trenches doing these things have the opportunity to bring you as leaders great ideas and great opportunities to grow your bottom line. And you want to try and harness that. Maybe shifting gears a little bit. So you're an evaluation person, right? So you live with numbers. Um, there's been a lot of push in the last couple of years to include more human capital disclosures in financial statements and, and financial reporting. 
what's your perspective? Is that helpful? Um, how does it even inform your work as a, as a valuation expert? Um, where do you think that's going to go? Yeah, so again, in the numbers, my lens is one of, again, the focus on the value of the enterprise. So at a at a core level, I do think it's great that we're, we're starting to see some more disclosures around human capital. I think that's a great idea for, for shareholders and prospective shareholders and investors to understand uh, how companies are performing on those elements beyond just looking at the, the financial numbers. But again, thinking about it from the value of the enterprise, here's what I think. Um, these disclosures have resulted in opportunities for investment. Um, there are ETFs and research firms that have been built around trying to capture the potential for outperformance for the companies that are doing better around human capital. So allowing them to take the deeper dive into the numbers around human capital disclosures and really even getting granular for the companies that you know, volunteer to participate and participate in surveys, what they get is an opportunity to be included in ETFs because, like I said, there's an identifiable strategy of outperformance. If you can identify the companies that are doing the right things on various human capital metrics, it, there's a good chance that they're going to be a better investment. So from that perspective, I think those disclosures are, are a great idea and probably will continue as the companies that are doing the right thing or trying to do the right thing can get more visibility with the investor base and maybe even attract more capital and at a lower cost of capital. So if I'm a, if I'm a you know, CEO or, or, or senior executive in a company, like, you know, what kind of, what kind of suggestions would you have to get a better handle, right? Around sort of the value creation side of this, right? Because obviously you have, I would say sort of the more humanistic actions you can take, appreciate people, right? create opportunities for process improvement, provide more autonomy and, and, uh, and ownership of the work product. But, but that's like soft and fuzzy in a way, right? Uh, but how can you actually so get that onto the CEO's dashboard? Yeah, so I, I'm a big believer that human capital is kind of the final frontier for value creation. Uh, we all know what the, the financial engineering piece looks like in terms of trying to grow sales and certainly reducing expenses. We know what that looks like, right? We see layoffs now happening and uh, that's one way to do it. But when you think about trying to get the, the workforce engaged and really leveraging this most valuable intangible asset, there are a couple of ways you can do it. Um, now, what I've seen is there are surveys that can be done uh, inside the organization where they do a deep dive on a whole host of metrics and think of the output as um, akin to a heat map, if you will, right? So on those various components of, of human capital and how they're being treated and managed and measured, uh, the areas that are identified as green, then we can say everything is just, just fine. We're doing well in those particular areas. But the areas that, that turn up red on the heat map are the areas where um, there's opportunity for improvement. And if you engage in the, the consulting work that can come from that and take those red areas and get them to yellow or get them better yet to green, uh, that's when you've got everything in alignment and that's when you start to realize the outperformance. So there are opportunities to do that. If anybody's interested in listening to that, they can certainly reach out to me. I'm help, happy to help them uh, get plugged in with that. But I think that's really what it comes down to. It is measurable, and there are actionable steps you can take to turn the needles. Yeah, I recall also in your book, you talk about the Gallup survey and the measure of engagement, to what extent. 
people are engaged, actively disengaged. Yeah, that, that's pretty. That's a pretty sad statistic. Um, like I said, I'm not a human capital guy, but in doing the research to put the book together, I was shocked to find that uh, the, the level of employee engagement worldwide is roughly one third, and it's been kind of stuck there for a really long time. So you know, think about that: seven out of ten people that show up at work are, are checked out. They're they're there to do the bare minimum or worse. Yeah, I like your I like your image of the of the lifeboat, right? Where you say, what did you say? You have three people rowing for their life. You got four people put their oars in the water, and and you got three people po poking holes in the in the bottom of the boat. Maybe to to bring that full circle as an executive, what might be some of the things that that you should consider and, and take away from this conversation? I think the biggest thing to consider is the idea that people really are assets. They are your most valuable intangible asset. And if you can harness that power of getting them not only rowing in the same direction, but rowing in the right direction, and you can get the discretionary effort, that's the holy grail of the employee engagement. And that's when the magic starts to happen. But you've got to create an environment that allows that to happen. So it's got to be a safe environment. So think about innovation. Um, if you've got a good culture and people are, are desiring to be difference makers and they come to you with a great idea, but it's not really a safe place to communicate it because you're going to get laughed out of the room if, if you're throwing something that's never been tried before, you're probably not going to volunteer that. And that's an idea that will never get surfaced and brought to, to daylight and there's a lost opportunity. So you've got to get the culture piece right. You've got to get everything, all those needles pointing to the green. And then you can start to realize the the outperformance, the uh, the additional return on investment, and the return on individuals. So, in your evaluation work, I would imagine that's probably mostly event driven, right? Where somebody wants to acquire another company, and let's say it's a professional services company, so there's a huge human capital component to this, and they got to kind of figure have to figure out, right? What is the what is the value of that particular asset? Is that is that correct? Yeah, that, there's a lot of reasons why companies need valuations. What you just described is certainly one of them. And in, in that circumstance, I think what you're alluding to is intuitively, hey, the, the, the assembled workforce is the most valuable asset because it's the people that we're engaging, right? In the same way you might think for an accounting firm and things like that. But unfortunately, in the world of valuation, in all likelihood, the more valuable assets that are going to get identified there are going to be things like the trade name, uh, the customer relationship asset. And again, the people are going to get subsumed into goodwill. That's just the accounting mechanism. It, unfortunately, that just is what it is. And until that changes, uh, I think the methodologies that we, we use are, aren't going to move much. Do you think there's like an interest um, for people to like move beyond kind of like what, what you know the hard numbers tell us, right? It's like how we treat it from an accounting perspective. And, and, and get a little bit more enlightened, um, both, I think, from a acquisition perspective right, or evaluation perspective, but maybe also like from an ongoing right, accounting perspective. Do you, do you think that's actually going to change at some point in time, that we're going to find something more sophisticated, like some formula that, that gives us a better handle on that? I Look, call me naive, but I'm optimistic that people are going to be uh, on a financial statement in the near future. That's my personal belief. I don't have any inside information on that. Um, it may just be uh, something that's aspirational, but I, I believe that's going to happen. Um, and I'm hopeful that when that does happen, that we can certainly modify and refine the, the ways that we value people. The good news is, Thomas, that right now, 
as uh, companies are looking to make acquisitions, whether it's you know private equity money or strategic buyers, there is an awareness and a consciousness that that people really do matter. Um, and I, I mentioned in the first book, I think the, the statistic is uh, something to the effect of between seventy-five and eighty-five or ninety percent of the deals that close don't actually deliver the uh, the synergies that were expected in the transaction. And the number one reason for that lack of synergy realization is the integration of the human capital merging two cultures. So. I think that uh, it's not lost on investors and buyers these days, and they're doing more in terms of due diligence and post-merger integration. Uh, I think there's still a lot more that can be done, uh, but I think it's definitely something that's uh, on people's minds and it is something that's happening now. Yeah, it would also strike me as we're getting moving more and more into a knowledge economy, right? where right, the number of items that we have in the warehouse and what we paid for them matters less and less. Right, if you kind of look. Yeah, think about it this way. I talk about this in the second book. Um, like, I think it was maybe 1975, uh, 90% of the S&P 500 value was comprised of tangible value. You know, the buildings, the machinery. And now you look at it today and 90% of the S&P 500 value is due to intangible value. Yeah assets, uh, patents, trademarks, and, and, and those pesky human beings, right, that we, that we employ. Those pesky human beings, exactly. Well, listen, Dave, thank you so much for sharing your insights on valuation and human capital. Um, thanks for coming on the show and for people who are interested in Dave's work. She has two books out that can both be found on Amazon. I think the new RI is like four ninety nine. I think it's a real steal. Yeah, both books are available at Amazon. Uh, like you said, the Kindle version is only four ninety nine, and if you have Kindle Unlimited, you can read them both for free. So, uh, by all means, avail yourself of that. And uh, if you'd like to learn more about me, you can check out newroi.com, and you can also find me on LinkedIn. I'm Dave Bookbinder. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dave. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. We hope you enjoyed this discussion. If you did, be sure to subscribe, like, share, or comment. Until next time, let's make work matter.